The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast is brought to you by Stock Market Hats. Stock Market Hats claim to be stylish and funny. Frankly, I wasn't that amused by some of them, but maybe you will be. And it's not just hats either, but they have t-shirts, sports bras, socks, and even pet ID tags. It's worth checking out, and right now you can take advantage of a 10% discount on all merchandise. Go to stockmarkethats.com and enter the code CONTRARIAN before you check out and take advantage of this special offer. There is a referral link I will put in the show notes as well. Stock Market Hats, claiming to be stylish and funny. Simon Erickson, founder and CEO of 7investing. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Very excited to have you. We are here to talk about a couple of things. And I'm going to kick it off because innovation, and this is going to sound like a cliche, but innovation is not just a luxury. It is necessary to survive. And that sounds like a little bit like a type of thing you would see in like a McKinsey study or one of these consulting things, but it's, it's true. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you some statistics here that in the past 15 years, so since about 2005, S&P 500 companies, half, exactly half of them have disappeared, gone under or perhaps been acquired. In 1960, so 60 years ago, 61 years ago, the lifespan of an S&P 500 company was 61 years, 6-1. In 2015, it was 17. And that was that's probably already dated. I don't have the up-to-date statistics, but it, it's probably much, much less now as we record this in 2021 going into 2022. So with that in mind, you have some views here on a couple of different sectors that you, where you see this innovation taking place. And the question, of course, for investors is how do they get ahead of this? And what could be right for, for displacement and for disruption? Throw another business school term there at you. I'm curious, you gave me three, but um, yeah, maybe you can just talk about that and we'll take it from there. Yeah, first of all, Nat, I'm really excited to be on your program. I love contrarian mindsets. I love seeing 
uh, what everyone else is not looking at. If you walk, if you look outside of the herd, that's where the biggest opportunities I think are for investors. That's exactly and, right. Yeah. And my spin, my spin on that, from my perspective, my world that I'm in is looking at innovation. Like you said, technologies are changing, companies are changing, and uh, sometimes they they change very rapidly or very um, destructively to the existing markets that they're in. And so I think that that's kind of the tie-in with being contrarian is, you know, if everyone else is focused on the way things are, oh, we need to make bigger and bigger companies, making more revenue, higher, higher margins. All of a sudden, there's a disruptive innovator that comes in and says, hey, we're going to rewrite, we're going to rewrite the rules of this game. We're going to find something completely different than what everybody's gotten used to. And at first, no one's paying attention to them. This is a contrarian idea. But then they can completely topple those existing income players, completely change markets. We've seen it time and time and time again. If you find those early on as an investor, those are the ones that can return 10 or 100 times your initial money. So that's where I spend my time looking for them. Interesting. So talk to me here about the sectors that we've that, you, that you've uh, discovered, three of them, where you think that this is particularly ripe for this type of innovation. Sure. Yeah. So I think that we, we chatted about three, you know, that we kind mm-hmm. of identified. Uh, one of the first ones that's getting a lot of attention right now is being called buy now, pay later. Uh, that's kind of the, the headline that you hear about, but really it's more of transparency and finance, and it's disruptive to credit card companies. Uh, in America alone, you know, credit card companies are charging $125 billion in interest, and then on top of that, another $15 to $20 billion every year in kind of unexpected late fees. And consumers hate this, right? You hate getting hit with fees. There's no value add for that. It's just an additional bill you got to pay. And a lot of times those fees are, are rewarding the credit card companies for giving credit cards to people uh, and then doing bad behavior, right? Buying things they shouldn't be and then they can't pay it off. And then, of course, there's a lot of problems that happen downstream of that. And so the idea was uh, what's now being called buy now, pay later of what if you just disclosed right up front what all of the installments and the interest payments for those are going to look like and then you pay it off over time. You make a mortgage for a consumer payment of any type, of any amount. And make sure you're finding the right consumers and the people that can responsibly pay it off. That's the real trick of what's going on out there. Yeah. Yeah. And have these have companies discovered this secret sauce um, of who, who will be able to do that? And how are they I, going about doing that? I think so. I mean, one that we've kind of been uh, paying a lot of attention to is a firm. And, uh, you know, they're kind of becoming the quintessential example of, of buy now, pay later. Their founder, uh, Max Levchin, was a previous chief technology officer of PayPal. And so he's made a name for himself over decades of finding the needles and haystacks of the outliers. You know, who were, what was the fraud that was plaguing PayPal back in the day? And now he's kind of on a new quest to figure out who, who are the outliers that really aren't going to be or shouldn't be getting out these kind of loans. And so I, I think that, you know, this is one company that has really cracked this code. There are several others, but I really like the approach on it because not only is it bringing benefit to the people who want to purchase things, and giving them an option if they didn't want to pay for everything right up front. But it's also a lot of benefit for the merchants too, because they're reaching a new consumer pool that they might not have had access to before. Affirm, right. The only experience I have with that buy now, pay later is on, uh, I, bought, I, I bought a mattress and, or a bed. And it was, uh, and when I was checking out, I was getting ready to get my credit card and they were like, hey, you can interest free. It's the only reason why I did it. Here, why don't you just do six payments for the next six months? I was like, wait, interest-free? There's no cash? Sure, I'll do it. So maybe, does, do they offer everybody those deals? Probably not, but okay. So but so how does, so, so okay, so they're basically a lender, this whole buy now, pay later thing. 
Kind of. In many ways, it's similar to that. But the, the whole thing is they're, they're, man, they're now an option that's on the checkout page when you're buying yeah. something online, right? So as opposed to just going in, if you go to the mattress store, Nat, and you, you pay for it in cash, they're not collecting very much information off you. They say, okay, here's your mattress, go enjoy it, and we'll take your cash for it. When you buy things online, you own that checkout page. You know, you kind of have the option of pay with credit card, pay with PayPal. Oh, and hey, now you can start buying things with buy now, pay later. And anyone that controls that experience, you know, if you sign up for a firm, they're going to give you other deals too. Hey, we see that you like really nice mattresses. Uh, do you want to also buy a nightstand or, a, you know, a new bedtime furniture? So it's going to start giving you other deals for other vendors and then giving you the option to pay in the same method that you did before. There's kind of a whole lot of digital information going out there. And to your other point of, you know, how did they offer that deal for you? That was actually chosen for you on the terms um, that you got because they said, okay, you probably had to sign up. They had, you had to, there's only a couple of data points you even have to give these uh, yeah. providers anymore. It's your last four, your social security number, your email address, um, your name, and your phone number, I think, is what most of them can do. But they go out and they scrape the internet and they find a whole bunch of stuff about you and they say, okay, this is a credit worthy uh, borrower. We're going to give them really favorable terms, 0% interest rates, whatever it might be. If you had, uh, they figured out that you weren't paying back your mortgage and you're delinquent on taxes and every other thing out there, they, they wouldn't make those kinds of deals for you. So it's customizing the experience for everybody and making sure that it's getting the right people to sign up for this that, that it wants, that, that will be credit worthy to pay them back over time. And what exactly does a firm do? They do the technology, that the, the software or what? Yeah, so Mattress Merchant now is uh, hands-off after you make the purchase the repayment of that for you said, I think it was six months, 0% or whatever it was. Yeah. If you signed up with a firm for that, they would be collecting the payments from your bank account for each of those installments. Merchant walks away, says here, a firm take three to 6% off the top um, for uh, handling this for me and taking the credit risk. And then they're responsible for getting the payments back. And they're also a firm is on the other side of that charging interest rates for most borrowers. Yeah. Uh, yours was a 0% interest, but a lot of them, you know, you're seeing kind of three, four, 5%, sometimes as high as 20%, depending on the borrower. But again, if you don't have the upfront cash and you really need to buy something or really want to buy something, it's an well, option. Maybe if you have to pay 20%, maybe you should buy it. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, and, and a lot of things like flights, travel, you know, uh -huh. it doesn't have to be discretionary all the time, but if you want to take a flight and you don't want to all of a sudden pay, um, $600 up front for a flight, but you're comfortable paying, I don't know, five, 7% interest rate because of time value of money. That's an option for you now. Interesting. Wow. And so they, so they basically have the, and, and a firm, and again, it's not the only company that does this. They go out and they, like you said, they scrape the internet. So they obviously have a, a bunch of big data processing that they can do to find out that the borrower is worthy of whatever. Right. And, and that's how they're able to, I mean, I'm assuming that credit card companies have the same information, right? Or have access to it. They do. And, you know, just kind of an example of this too, is there, there are installment plans, right? You could, you could probably sure. go anywhere, even where you buy a mattress from and they'll say, oh, you can pay this off over four installments and things like that. Uh, even credit card companies are kind of setting up new installment plans. Amazon's got an installment plan, mm. but it's not fixing the fundamental problem though. Now the disruptive part of this is we're trying to wean ourselves off of interest payments. So if we're doing installment plans, we can still use your credit card for That's not fixing the fundamental problem that people shouldn't be borrowing that money in the first place. It needs to come directly debited from your bank account. And we need to know that it's a credit worthy borrower. That's what we're trying to fix at the higher, at the higher level. Buy now, pay later, in my opinion, is not a fad. I think this is something that's definitely here to stay. And you can see it a lot more places five years from now. How big is this industry and how many companies are there other than a firm? 
There's quite a few, and you're starting to see it acquisitions too, right? Afterpay yeah. was an Australian-based uh, buy now, pay later provider. It just got bought up by Square. I think oh, it was wow. $29 billion deal for the merger. Uh, Square is wanting to build a financial ecosystem. You can do all sorts of things, not just buy now, pay later, but you can also trade NFTs. You can buy and sell Bitcoin now on Square. I mean, they just want that to be one option in a much, much bigger ecosystem. And then there's a whole bunch of other smaller ones too, especially here in the United States too. Uh, the question is, is kind of what kind of interest rates do you want to charge? Do you want to hold the risk and the loans yourselves? And then what role of data are you collecting about people? Mm. We're going to see a lot of them shake out. Some are going to stay and some are going to get acquired. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I mean, what's to keep somebody from like Visa? I mean, Visa is fresh in my mind because they just reported earnings yesterday and uh, disappointed and the stock was dumped in a major way, partly because of their conservative outlook and partly because of some of these issues that they, they actually talked about worried worried about being disrupted a little bit um but why couldn't they because they i think they have plenty of cash or even if they don't they can borrow it like couldn't they acquire in the firm or somebody else yeah i mean visa has been very acquisitive you know they're, yeah. they're actually very on top of what's going on in financial services you've seen yeah. that even talking about cryptocurrencies and things uh, visa is not fighting uphill against things that are meant to happen right I think that it's more of a risk for kind of those those banks that are have been a little bit yeah, slower to adapt to a lot of these technologies. Yeah, really interesting because you know banks are one of these things that uh, that's been talked about a lot. It's kind of ready for disruption, and there's been a couple of them around the edges. Like you know, Lending Club is probably ten years old already, yeah. and some other ones. But but it's kind of something we haven't really seen all that much of. I mean, I know this isn't banking, but it's it's lending, it's borrowing, and it's consumer acquisition. So it's it's easy. Is there anything that could, that could screw it up? Like, I mean, is it a regulatory part? I mean, I mean, I know we, we talk about credit cards shouldn't be charging what are basically usury rates, you know, compound interest of 20% or more. But if, if uh, buy now pay later does it, it's still the same kind of, you know, ripoff, isn't it? It's well, they've still got to get the payments out. Like, like say that, say that they make a, they make a wrong, they make the wrong offer to somebody who's not going to pay it back. You still got to have the installments and it's directly debited from a bank account. You can still have overdrafts. You know, you can still have trouble if you make the wrong loans and then those go delinquent and then you're sitting on them on the balance sheet and they can blow right. up. I think that's the tie. I think that's why a firm is my favorite in the space, just because you've got an experienced operator. Max has done this for decades. He's not going to blow up the company by making bad loans. He's going to continue to tweak those algorithms all the time. It's a digital world out there, Nat. I mean, everybody's using yeah. every zero and one out there to their advantage. Uh, software is innovating a whole lot of industries. And like we said, financial service is a big one. All right. And tell me, let's talk about a second one. Yeah. So speaking of zeros and ones, let's talk about computing, right? We were right. talking a lot about kind of the semiconductor shortage that's out there and all the innovation that's happening with semiconductor chips. Uh, but something that's really disruptive that's on the horizon, it's still a science project for the most part right now, but it's starting to get some attention in some publicly traded companies, is quantum computing. And the reason I bring this one up is because this is not just a faster computer. Uh, a lot of people that hear quantum say, oh yeah, okay, just like a CPU, but you know, it's 100 times faster than a so It's a completely different set of rules and a completely different way that processing is being done. It's not just ones and zeros. It's not just classical computing that we've gotten used to with CPUs running code in series. This is completely different fundamental science that's built upon quantum mechanics and quantum physics. Um, it's really hard to understand. I don't understand. Even the experts in the field admit they don't really understand what's going on under the hood. But it's a much, much faster way to actually do computing. 
Um, the algorithms that are solving problems are happening at several orders of magnitude faster. And that's going to unlock a whole lot of opportunities for companies that are trying to solve really, really hard problems out there. Huh. Well, you know, Warren Buffett says, don't invest in anything you don't understand. So if we no don't- No one should invest thing, by his <laughs> rationale then. <laughs> but, but from a big picture, top down, can you talk about what, like, what is, who, who's behind this and how, how does it work fundamentally? Like, do you have, yeah, can you talk to us about that? There's limitations on what we can do. Even with as fast as computers have gotten today, even the highest performing computers that are out there, they're solving really, really hard things like climate change or logistics, uh, drug development. You know, how do you simulate molecules? You know, what's going on in the body when the drug gets delivered? I mean, things like that, we kind of do the best that we can, but there's so many variables um, that you just can't really do better than, than we're, we've kind of been plateauing for years. We have faster processes that can crunch numbers faster and faster. But when you're dealing with millions of variables on very, very complex things, uh, it, it blows up. It would take way too long to do this. And quantum computers is really looking, it's not, you're not gonna have a quantum computer on, on our desktop that you know we're using to use Microsoft Excel for. But if I'm trying to model out climate change and what's gonna happen every single place in the world, and I've got data points from millions of sensors on every continent, and I want to see what all this is meaning. Uh, that could be an application that would need something like this. Again, the drug developer one, I think that's an interesting one. Design for materials. I mean, right now we're talking a lot about the batteries that are going into Tesla's vehicles for electric vehicles because range anxiety. People are like, ah, I, I really am used to being able to pull over into a gas station because I need to fill up. I don't want to run out of range. Imagine if you could have an electric vehicle that could drive in circles all around Texas five times before it runs out because you've got perfect storage in a, in a battery and you've designed that perfectly because now you know how to you know, solve all the, the material challenges when you're designing things like that. I mean, R&D could be completely disrupted the way that we know it today if you had something with an interface that can solve very, very complex problems. So who's behind this quantum computing? And you did mention there are some public companies that can profit from it. There's a whole bunch of different approaches right now. Uh, the academic work is, is kind of focusing on how do you get a, a stable qubit, which is kind of the, the word that you, that you look for in, in quantum computings. Google's worked on this for years. IBM has worked on this for years. Microsoft has worked on this for years. Uh, now we're starting to see some pure play companies like IonQ, I-O-N-Q is a ticker on that one, just now coming public to the markets. Uh, and they believe that their ion trapping technology is completely disruptive to anything else that's going on out there. And again, now these are companies that Maybe we'll have $10 million in revenue this year if everything goes well, and they're selling at $2 billion market cap. Mm. So, I mean, you're talking about several hundreds, if not thousands of times sales. Um, that's a head scratcher for anybody who's a value investor saying, how can you possibly pay that much for a company like that? But I'll tell you, when you look at the market caps of A&D and, and NVIDIA and Intel, and even the manufacturers of uh, classical computers and CPUs out there, I mean, these could easily, if, if they crack the code and this actually becomes a standard, you could have 100, 200, 500 billion dollar market caps in these companies. Yeah, this company has been public for, uh, wow, not a, not a very long time at all. Like since October 1st, it looks like they had their IPO and, and it's gone up, but it hasn't gone up that much. Was this a, a SPAC deal? Because it was right around 10 bucks. No, it sure was. It oh, it was. Okay. Absolutely. So it's to 1228 now. Um, so, okay, you know, 20%. But it's uh, yeah, two point one billion dollar market cap at its current valuation. It did go up ten percent today. Maybe they knew you were going to be talking about it. But um, but you still think it's worth? Obviously, this is an investment advice. 
but this you still think it's 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 worth acquiring for people who are are interested in this? I don't. I, I don't. I'm not oh. sure. I, I'm oh. so early on this on, on quantum computing that like right now these are all dart throws. Sure. There's no way you can say a company that's that small that has 10 million dollars of revenue. So what, what is that? 200 times sales. Yeah. Two million dollar valuation. I mean, that that is that is one of many dart throws that's going to be happening in quantum. But I'll tell you, somebody's going to crack this code. Yeah. You know, whether it's IonQ, whether it's Microsoft, whoever it is. I mean, if it's a small company that can show qubit stability and the ability to have a commercially available quantum computer that starts doing sales and having a UI and a user interface that's useful for it, something like that is, is going to knock it out of the park. And nice. I think that the contrarian in me recognizes that, that even if these valuations seem super expensive right now, maybe they really aren't. Yeah. I wonder if there's a quantum computing ETF that kind of can take a bit of a larger, more macro approach. There certainly uh, is. I forget oh, the sticker on it right now, but I have seen a couple of them come public now. Yep. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. I do want to take a quick break and come back just to give our sponsors a chance. And when we come back, I want to ask you some questions about your background in seven investing um, before we move on to the last final topic of discussion here. But let's first take a, a break. If you are a premium subscriber, do not touch the dial. You will not get the break. And to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. This episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast brought to you by Stock Market Hats. Stock Market Hats claim to be stylish and funny. Some of them say things like, end the Fed, don't tax the rich, I heart the Fed, Dr. Parikh Patel, not back office. Okay, that one is actually kind of funny. Market cap cap, that's also pretty funny. And some other ones. You may know their Twitter, at Stock Market Hats, but check it out, stockmarkethats.com, and enter contrarian at checkout to take advantage of a 10% discount. Welcome back, everybody, here with Simon Erickson um, of Seven Investing. Seven Investing is a new firm, but this is the section relatively new year. And nowadays, it's not really new anymore. But we're That's this, one seventh of the average lifespan of the SP. There right? you go. Yeah, yeah. I think, okay. <laughs> yeah, I think it was 117th, but right. But but again, those are 2015 numbers. But the this is the section of the show where we'd like to talk to our guests a little bit more about their personal background how they got to this stage um, in life. You are the CEO and founder of Seven Investing. So what were you doing before? But go back, take, take us back as far, or as far back as you like. Although if you go back very far, then I will ask it for a Cliff Notes version. So we go, don't need to get, get into like major details around like your junior year, et cetera. But no, go ahead. <laughs> well, when I was born, let me tell you <laughs> when I was born. <laughs> yeah. 
The, uh, the quick cliff notes version is I, I'm an engineer by training. You know, nice. I, I came out as a chemical engineer and then went into technical sales. And so I spent most of my twenties going around uh, that same courtyard Marriott felt like my room every single week going out. But, but, you know, we were selling specialty chemicals. Every single customer wanted to do something innovative and new that they could sell at higher prices and, and better margins than their competitors. So I had a taste for this love of innovation. Uh, went back, got an MBA, went to work uh, for a large energy company developing renewable energy projects for them. So building solar plants and figuring out the economics of that and how can you not mess up the economics of a big oil company if you're going to be doing renewable projects. Um, after doing that for a little while, uh, strategy and uh, kind of venture capital side of that, I worked for The Motley Fool for seven years, uh, ran some services for them and really looked at industries that were undergoing changes and the innovations that were taking place. Uh, so kind of a 180, if you will, from looking at things from the inside and developing them for a company and now looking as an outsider, as an investor saying, okay, is this going to work? What company do I actually want to invest in? And then like, like you mentioned, um, my favorite part of the, of the, of my professional career was, was in March of 2020, when we started seven investing, um, brought in a fantastic team of stock pickers and our lead advisors. We have seven of them now that every single month we're going out and we're each finding our very, very best idea in the stock market, pooling those together. And our top seven picks are available through a subscription product. And so you did. So it sounds like you do have a background in, you know, the the I guess the growth company, technology type of sector. Especially if you're you're an engineer, you know this stuff a little more closely than than others might. And so uh, so so yeah. So it's fitting that you you would talk about these these uh, segments of the of the economy, I guess, of of business that are ripe for, I guess. Uh, yeah, um, dislodging the way that we, we do business. And we, we've seen this, right, in the last 10 years, uh, just how much things have changed and, and it looks like they are gonna continue to change. Um, so let's talk about this third idea that you had. Yeah, so the third one, you know, that really catches my eye as a fan of, uh, of, of innovation and disruption is gene editing. This is another one that's starting to get a lot of attention. You're starting to see headlines about CRISPR, you're starting to see kind of some publicly traded companies, but fundamentally, why, why are we doing this? Why is this so important anyway? It, the healthcare system that we have traditionally is built around kind of sick care. When you get sick, you go to the hospital and they give you something to treat that, or they give you a drug to treat that, you know, or if you have a chronic condition, they just kind of continue to, to chronically treat you for things like that. And that's been the basis of, of drug development and most pharmaceutical companies in the United States and Europe for decades. And this is the disruptive angle of that is what if you could actually go upstream of treating a condition that's starting to manifest and showing symptoms and actually fix the, the fundamental problem itself? What if you could actually edit the genes that are telling your, your, they're telling your cells in your body to create harmful proteins that are causing you those issues that you have to, you have, to have treated later on? And so that's the idea of gene editing. It's very difficult right now. It's very expensive. It's very selective. It's very personalized, but there's a lot of breakthroughs kind of happening in this field that certainly has the attention of investors like myself. Hmm. What are some? One that's got my attention is Intellia Therapeutics. Take on that as NTLA. And so they are doing gene editing. It's a CRISPR is the, uh, the approach that they're taking. And they're going uh, primarily, at least right now, this is still pre-revenue. This is still just in clinical trials. But there's a condition called transthyretin amyloidosis. It's a mouthful, especially when you don't have enough yeah. coffee yet, like I don't. But I'm not going to try to say that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's fatty builds up in the liver, right? You've got, you've got these, these fatty proteins that are building up in the liver, and it typically kills you within a couple of years. 
Uh, but again, it's a genetic disorder. There's something wrong in the genome that it's an anomaly that says do this and your body's doing that. And so the idea is if you could actually go in and, and edit those, those cells and those genes directly within the liver that are causing those problems, you won't have those fatty buildups anymore. You can have a reduction in the transthyretin protein that's causing the problems that go on to build these, these buildups within the body. And so the idea is, you know, get upstream, fix the source of the problem rather than trying to treat it downstream. And there's a whole bunch of different things from hereditary blindness uh, to sickle cell disease, um, you know, uh, spinal or muscular atrophy, transthyretin amyloidosis, I mean, stuff like this. There's a whole bunch of either very small or very complex diseases that could be treated at the genetic level. Hmm. And how close are we to, you said these are in clinical trials now, how close are we to potentially getting a, the first, I guess it would be the first, right? Uh, Still years out. Um, think, it's kind of interesting though, because when you say, you know, the question is interesting when you say, how far are we? Um, there's obviously a whole lot of regulatory protections on this. You have to do your homework and show that it works in the first place and it's safe. Uh, and then on top of that, we've kind of got an ethical debate in the United States of, you know, do we want to be gene editing things? Uh, what about germline? What about stuff that's going to manifest in your kids and then in their kids? Uh, that's a really hot topic right now, which in China, we've all, there's already been genetically engineered babies that have been born uh, by a scientist that just kind of ran forward with his experiment over there and is now more or less under house arrest uh, with the Chinese authorities because he went and he did this. Great breakthrough from scientific perspective. Uh, not as exciting if, if the government told you not to do something that you did anyway. And so gene editing as a whole, I mean, it's kind of something like in vitro fertilization um, was really, really controversial um, decades ago. And now it's generally accepted by most places as a way for people who otherwise couldn't have kids to have kids. Uh, will gene editing follow a similar approach or something that's very, very controversial today gain societal acceptance um, to really phase out a lot of diseases and a lot of conditions that are causing a lot of problems and suffering for people out there to be seen. I mean, it's yeah. really hard to tell the answer of when that's going to actually gain adoption. What are the potential side effects of gene editing? You touched on, you know, potentially screwing up the, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they seem to be pretty fast. Yeah. I mean, that's the right, the right question to ask, right? So the uh, genetically engineered uh, children in China, there were twins, two twin girls. Uh, they, they were trying to uh, genetically engineer so they'd be HIV resistant to two yeah. HIV positive parents. And they succeeded in that. The kids didn't have um, that uh, affecting them because they genetically engineered them. But now they're starting to wonder, okay, what with this gene that we knocked out uh, so that you could uh, be resistant to this, what is going to be the long-term effects from something like that? And, and we don't know. You know, There are a lot of parts of the genome we don't know anything about just yet. And we don't know how they're interacting. We don't know that if genes that we thought were just correlated to one certain thing specifically, maybe have got correlations to other things that we don't understand yet. And so there's kind of this field of science. It's kind of the, uh, I guess you call it polygenic risk scores of, you know, how likely are you to developing a condition based on the genome that we can see and that we understand in your body. It's kind of like if you ever took the ancestry.com um, screen, you know, the DNA screen, you, 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 I think you spit in the thing and then they send it mm -hmm. off and they say, okay, yeah, Simon, you're European, great. At the beginning, the, the circle was this big. It was all of Europe because they didn't know exactly where it was. And then it gets better over time. It says, okay, actually, you're mostly from the you United know, Kingdom and Germany. And it gets more and more specific. Same thing's happening with our understanding of diseases and genes. You might have a gene that they say, okay, this is what we think about it right now. And it gets more and more specific. And the scientific understanding of it gets more and more pronounced. That's what's really exciting about gene editing 
and really just genomics as a whole, because um, it's going to unlock a, a whole lot of new doors that we haven't gone through before in science. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. All right. So you've talked to us here about some really interesting concepts and a couple of ways that these could manifest itself for investors. And how do you guys pick your entry points? Like it's, it's, you know, it's easy to, to it's one thing to pick the, the theme and then it's a little harder to pick the companies that are going to be able to profit from the theme. And then thirdly, you have to find your entry point to where you're comfortable with, with allocating the funds to get access. So how do you go about that, that final step? Yeah, and, and first I should say, Nat, that Seven Investing, even though we're talking about some really cool, futuristic, cutting-edge stuff, we actually try to set the full buffet of options for investors. So, you know, in addition to talking about cool stuff in gene editing and quantum computing, we also make dividend-paying retail nice. companies as our recommendations. Uh, you know, or telecom companies or things that are much larger that aren't quite as risky. We want to right. have low risk and high risk, sure. super high rewards and, you know, more, more in tune with the S&P rewards because we think investing is a very personal thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to answer your question about how do you how do you think about valuation for a company that's disruptive? It starts at the market. You have to start at the market because you got to figure out what is the market going to change and who's going to embrace this? You know, if this catches on, what is the actual market potential in terms of billions of dollars, hopefully? that your disruptive solution could achieve. And if you say, okay, the market's this large, what percentage of that market share do you think this could grab? And then you kind of work backwards and say, okay, well, if revenue is gonna look like this five years out, what's the percentage chance of this succeeding? Okay, maybe it's 30% chance. And if you kind of walk backwards and say, what's the valuation I wanna pay for that today? You might say, wow, this is an incredible bargain because nobody is thinking this is gonna succeed or the market's not big enough or their share of the market's not big enough. Uh, or it's just it's just not understood at all. It's going to be a completely different market. And um, so I, I tend to think of it in terms of I, I look for things that I really like. Um, gone to a lot of conferences in the last ten years and just seeing what PhDs are really excited about, and that tends to go into the commercial markets and find its way into businesses over time. Um, and so it's it's not an exact science, but you can certainly see if the bar is here, but the price for the company is here. You you can kind of figure out what's a bargain and what has really got too much hype already baked into it. You know, one thing that uh, you didn't mention here uh, was crypto. And I'm curious because that is oftentimes the first thing that people mention when they think of disruptive technologies and blockchain, I guess, more specifically. Do you have any views on that? Tons. How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Not much. Uh, Crypto is something that has followed the disruptive curve. You've got early adopters, you know, who are in their basement buying Bitcoin before anyone else has even heard of it for a couple of pennies per Bitcoin. And, And that is the first step that's necessary. Uh, then all of a sudden you have kind of the early, the early majority where you start seeing companies like, like Elon Musk with Tesla, uh, with a handful of other companies buying crypto, buying Bitcoin, putting on their balance sheet or accepting it as transactions. But still, I'm not buying anything with Bitcoin today. And most people still aren't doing that. Maybe in five years, we, we will be, though. Maybe this is going to just be something that I say, oh, wow, if I hold Bitcoin in a cryptocurrency account like Coinbase and I'm getting paid 12% a year just for holding it there, and I can buy things when the price of it goes up that I wouldn't have been able to afford earlier, maybe I'll start making transactions with that. And then maybe five, five, 10 years after that, um, we, we just see the majority where everyone's grandma is like, yeah, send me some Bitcoin, you know, this digital app that I've got on my smartphone. I mean, stuff like this takes time, but you start seeing it catch on as more and more people um, recognize how it could be useful for them. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. What about blockchain technology more specifically? I mean, the enterprise is figuring that one out right now, right? Crypto at first came direct to consumers. You could go set up an account and buy Bitcoin and sit on them as a store of value, or it was something that you were using as an investment, probably for the short-term pops that we've seen, or at least the volatility of it. Uh, the fundamental blockchain technology itself, the distributed ledger, which is really, really interesting, does not require financial middlemen because mm. everybody's looking at the same distributed ledger that's very, very hard to crack or have any chargebacks or any fraud associated with it. And so companies that have really, really sophisticated global supply chains with lots of middlemen, Starbucks, Walmart, are adopting blockchain within their own operations and their own infrastructure. Mm. So absolutely, it's going to be a huge, huge deal. And a lot of it, I think, Nat, is going to be Ethereum because Ethereum mm -hmm. also is connected to smart contracts, which mm. means you don't have to get the legal aspect involved for a lot of the transactions. You know, the mm. paperwork, oh, the, the ship showed up, you know, the port here, let's verify that this guy here, stuff like that. If you could just settle all of that instantaneously, huge time savings, huh. huge efficiency win. Very cool. All right. Interesting. All right. Simon Erickson, in concluding here, maybe uh, tell us about 7investing.com, where else people can find you. I know you are active on the Twitter, as am I. That's how we connected. So uh, yeah, where, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Matt. On Twitter, we're at 7investing. That's the number 7investing. Um, I'm at 7innovator. And our website is 7investing.com. We, we put out our new picks on the first of the month. I know that you said that you're going to drop this podcast for your subscribers today. Our first mm -hmm. picks will be coming out on November 1st, cool. just a couple of days from now. And that's when our new seven recommendations will be coming out for the next month. And so this is something that the seven of you, are you one of the seven or you just oversee the thing? I am. Yes. I'm putting myself in the middle of the, of the pool as well. That's cool. right. So you're one, so you're one of seven, there's seven of you and you, you guys all do your research during the month. And then you, on the, this first meeting of the month, you put out this, your best idea. Uh, how does that work? Is everybody focused on a different segment of the market or, or is it? We just, do. We, we yeah. typically have different sectors that we, that we focus on. You know, we've got some people that are really, really in tune with biotechnology. Others really uh -huh. like artificial intelligence, some like financial services, and then even retail and entertainment, more established things. And cool. we transparently track every single one of our picks too. Uh, we nice. think that if we're going to, if we're going to go out and call ourselves stock pickers, we need to be holding ourselves accountable. And we're transparently reporting the real-time return of every single pick we've ever made on our recommendations page. Very cool. Very cool. And so it's, it comes out when, when is this released generally and how, like, is it a, is it a podcast? Is it just a paper that you put out? How does that work? We'll, uh, we'll put the reports together. So we will publish on the first of the month reports for each of our recommendations. So if Simon's going to go out and recommend, I, I can't tell the company right yeah, now, yeah. but XYZ uh, on the first of November that my report will come out. You can ask questions directly to me either in an email on Twitter DMs, or we even have a community forum now. Nice. Uh, we kind of think that investing is this long-term journey that's very personal for people. We don't just want to issue a report and disappear. We want to kind of continue that conversation. And then also follow those companies. You know, they change over time too. They do new yeah. things. Uh, Facebook today is now going to yeah. be the metaverse company, you know, the meta company. No, no, I think it's just meta. Meta, meta. That's yeah. right. That's right. MVRS, MRVS. I'm yeah, have to meta wasn't available. META wasn't available. So did you have yeah. that website already, Nat? Did you have meta.com? Well, I wish, yeah. Somebody made a lot of money off of that. I know, company. right? Yeah. But I mean, the company's changed too. And so we want to keep up with oh, yeah. what they're doing as well over time. Cool. And, and now are these, so these are released to your subscribers then the first of the month. Are they released to the general public later on or not? You just keep them great. And so how does one get in there? Obviously, 7investing.com has more information. What are the general costs associated with this? Yep, 7investing.com slash subscribe if you'd okay. like to get started. Uh, our subscription is $49 a month or $400 a year uh, with a special caveat that if you're a student in a university, uh, I know that you don't have any money because I've been there and done that myself. So we're offering a special rate of $84 a year. 
Uh, put the rest of it towards your tuition, if not beer money. Cool. <laughs> yeah, right. Somebody <laughs> tells me I know where that's going to go if my experience as, as a student was any guide in this. Very, very cool. All right, Simon, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening. And with that, we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.